So you can help celebrate our birthday by accepting a lovely gift. The Outline World Dispatch. It's Wednesday, November 15th, 2017. I'm Adrian Jeffries. Today, I talked to Daniel Carter about Twitter parties, which are looking like the new Tupperware parties. And Jason Kebler joins me to talk about the real reason we should boycott Keurig. Here's the dispatch. The future. Daniel, how was your first Twitter party? <laughs> uh, it was long. It was really long uh, and intense. I think I, I think I did two at the same time for the first one. And um, it was as absurd as I thought it was going to be. Uh, and I may never do one again. Are they fun? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm pretty far from their demographic. So um, it's not something I would do for fun in my free time. What is a Twitter party? A Twitter party is a way that brands get a lot of people together to engage with brand content, uh, uh, facts about products, uh, excitement about products for about an hour at a time in exchange for uh, handing out some sweepstakes prizes. Tell us what is involved on a practical level when when one participates in a Twitter party? Yeah, so to participate in a Twitter party, really all you do is follow a hashtag that you're told to ahead of time. And you start following this hashtag and we'll see a lot of people talking, uh, some of which are hosts or sometimes it's the brand's account. And the main thing that happens is that over the course of an hour, they'll ask questions, usually about 10 questions, and then everybody kind of scrambles to answer the questions in this particular format. Uh, and you do that for about an hour, and then they draw some prizes and announce a few winners, and then it just kind of disappears. You notice that these Twitter parties where brands sign up uh, a blogger or you know someone who has a presence, some kind of personality on the internet, um, as they say, an influencer and has that person like host a party about the product, um, you notice that that has a historical precedent. Yeah, so... Now let's go to a little town in New Jersey where things are really popping. Yes, there's a party going on at Mrs. Betty Martin's house. It's a Tupperware party, and it's really fun. It was just kind of said, oh, you know, Twitter parties are really, really weird. Um, and then I started thinking about Tupperware parties which is like, actually, I can remember my mom, I think, having a Tupperware party or, or going to one when I was a kid. Plan to have or attend a Tupperware party soon. This is something that goes back to at least the 40s and, and probably a little bit before where marketers figured out that they could get into people's houses by having parties and having someone, you know, get a group of friends together and compensate them in some small way. Every hostess receives a valuable gift from Tupperware. You know, you have a group of uh, housewives for an hour, a few hours to show them products uh, and to also kind of have some social obligation for them to, to buy something. So I just thought it was this really interesting continuation of, um, of that tradition, but online. 
So back to the Twitter party that you participated in, the one that you described in the story. What was that Twitter party or those those two Twitter parties that you did simultaneously? What brands were they for? Let's see. So the ones that were simultaneously were uh, hashtag craft beer hair. That was for brew shampoo, B-R-O umlaut, O umlaut. And there was also hashtag tea proudly for Bigelow brand tea. I guess they didn't want it to be hashtag tea party. <laughs> you know, um, there might be some demographic overlap. What kind of brands are doing this? Is this mostly big brands, small brands? So it's mostly, I would say medium to large. I saw a lot of large brands. Bigelow Tea, Oshkosh, Bagash, Bounty had apparently done a pretty big one. What about this broader phenomenon of kind of the internet marketing echo chamber where people seem to be talking to either no one or talking to mostly themselves? Yes, it's really fascinating to me. So I was along, well, maybe about a year ago, I was interviewing a woman and um, she was a woman who entered sweepstakes kind of like this. She probably did Twitter parties and she called herself a blogger. And I said, oh, well, um, you know, what's your blog? Where's your blog? And she said, oh, well, I don't actually have a blog, but I call myself a blogger because I do these things. I thought, this is really bizarre. It's, it's, it's really circular because the bloggers are getting by promoting products to people who want to be bloggers or who enter sweepstakes um, so that you end up with this very small section of the Internet or maybe not so small that's just kind of talking to themselves and they're all promoting products in the hopes of promoting products. It's like become a thing of its own that doesn't have any, it, there's no there there, there's no substance there. So what do you think is happening with the woman who called herself a blogger but doesn't have a blog? I, I, I think when, you know, maybe you and I think about blogs, we think about kind of how, how they were pitched uh, when they were getting started, which is anybody can say anything and it's totally independent. But I'm guessing that, you know, you and I don't read a lot of mom blogs and when you read bomb blogs, you realize that everything is sponsored content. So I think when that woman said that she was a blogger, I think what she meant was she promotes products online. And for her, that's actually what blogger means. Your research has been focused on digital media and labor. How does this fit into that? So I look at what these people are doing at Twitter parties as labor, even though um, they would not see it as labor. Um, so when I look at this at work as work, I'm trying to think about kind of um, why are people willing to spend their time doing this? What are they actually being compensated with? And, um, you know, maybe what holes, what gaps are they filling by doing this? And did you win anything in the nine Twitter parties that you participated in? I won nothing. Uh, I could I could only bring myself to type the answers in the one, and after that, I, I felt like such a fraud that I, that I couldn't couldn't enter any others. Let's see. You said the prompt was, "Have you ever used a can of beer to wash your hair?" And your response was, "Never." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Daniel. Yeah. Thank y'all. Daniel Carter is an assistant professor of digital media at Texas State University.
the future. Hello? Can you hear me? Hello? I'm literally in a uh, 200-year-old spooky library. Yeah. Jason Kebler is the editor-in-chief of Motherboard. So we're talking about Keurig? So people on the internet have been posting videos and pictures of themselves smashing their Keurig coffee machines. Look what I found. This is what I think of you, Keurig. Well, let's get the smashing, folks. And the reason they're doing that is because Keurig pulled its advertising from Sean Hannity's program. But Jason Kebler believes there is a better reason to protest Keurig. So uh, people seem to all of a sudden be discovering that Keurig is bad. Yeah, it seems like people across the political spectrum are learning this. Uh, conservatives seem to think that Keurig is bad because it pulled its advertising from Hannity over this very absurd uh, Roy Moore situation, which uh, I don't even think I have the energy to explain. But <laughs> and they're smashing their Keurig machines and liberals should boycott Keurig as well because it's a tech company sort of that sort of represents everything bad about new hardware in the, from the last few years. Keurig was one of the pioneers in bringing the idea of copyright and digital rights management to, uh, to, to coffee. Yeah. So we don't normally think of our coffee machines as electronics, but Keurig certainly has turned them into electronics. And if you're not familiar, uh, there are basically these things called K-cups, which are single-use coffee pods that brew exactly one cup of coffee. So Keurig invented this machine maybe a decade or so ago, and in 2014, Keurig lost the patent for the K-cup. So in 2014, there was this flurry of sort of knockoff K-cups flooding the market. And what happened then is Keurig invented a new type of coffee maker called the Keurig 2.0 that does exactly the same thing as the Keurig 1.0, but it doesn't brew original K-cups, it brews K-Cup 2.0. And so all these aftermarket K-Cups would not be brewed in Keurig 2.0 machines because of digital rights management. So if you try to go and brew a cup of coffee using an off-brand K-Cup, you get an error, an error message saying uh, you are not authorized to brew this coffee in this machine. Are K-Cups recyclable? K-Cups are not recyclable. Um, I feel comfortable saying that even though Keurig does make recyclable K-Cups circa last year. Um, before that, they were all completely disposable. Now there are exactly two types of two brands of coffee that make recyclable K-Cups that amount to a tiny fraction of the overall K-Cup economy. So every year there are over 10 billion K-Cups sold. Uh, two of the varieties are recyclable and uh, it's like kind of doubtful that those are among the best selling, although that data isn't available. So the K-Cups and the Keurig system, you got to admit it's super convenient. Sometimes you just want one cup of coffee and you can specify how many ounces you want it to be. You can do that and it is really convenient. Uh, I would argue that it's not that much more convenient than making a pot of coffee, but I do see the appeal if you're in a hotel or you're single and live alone, something like this. 
So I, I'm told that you don't have to feel that guilty from an environmental perspective in terms of actually brewing K-cup coffee because there have been some studies done showing that it basically heats up water uh, for much less time than a drip coffee machine does. Um, you're not There's not waste of coffee because you're only making one serving, that sort of thing. Um, and then the actual production of a K-cup, the, the coffee within it is supposed more sustainable. Um, I don't know the full specifics on this, which is why I think that Keurig is more of a tech slash DRM problem than an environmental one. Um, it sort of represents this movement in all of tech to make more proprietary devices that can't be uh, user modified by really anyone. So uh, the Keurig is not repairable. Keurig sells no repair parts. So if it's broken, it's trash, which is not good. It has a ton of electronics inside of the machine itself. So it becomes e-waste quite quickly. So if the problem is waste, then would it be worse to smash the Keurig? So I have been thinking about this a lot, actually. I've been wondering if it's actually a good thing to smash the Keurig and buy a drip coffee machine or revert to an old drip coffee machine. Um, what do you think? This is like, there have been no scientific studies done on this yet. I mean, is there a way to responsibly recycle the Keurig machine itself? There is not. I guess the only recourse is to smash the whole Keurig system. Yeah, I think conservatives are onto something here, even though it seems like they sort of stumbled onto it. Jason Kebler is the editor-in-chief of Motherboard. You can read his article, Keurig Coffee Machines Are Hell Devices That Everyone Should Boycott, at motherboard.vice.com. Subtle. <laughs> There's also another really good article people should read on Deadspin called How Not to Make Coffee that touches on a lot of these points. Interesting. I'll have to check that out. Thank you so much, Jason. Okay, bye. Thank you. That's it for The Dispatch. We're here four days a week, Monday through Thursday. Please tune in, subscribe, tell your friends to subscribe, and we will see you tomorrow.